0: Hello, welcome, what's good? This is Danley and Friends, where I share empowering stories, encourage raw, open dialogue, and explore intriguing ideas to empower you to maximize your life. Coming to you from the heart of the heartland, Columbus, Ohio, I'm your host, Ryan Danley. Let's get to it. The following words are from the bio of my next guest, Sarah. I was born to learn and to instruct. In elementary school, I coached younger students in math in return for comics drawing lessons. In high school, I mentored struggling middle school students and taught dance. Though I initially arrived at college intent on a career in diplomacy for the State Department, I found myself consistently drawn away by my love of teaching and experiential education. In spring of my junior year, I completed a semester in the Rockies with the National Outdoor Leadership School and learned valuable communication techniques that I use with my students to this day. After graduating from college, I worked as an instructor and coordinator with outdoor education nonprofit organizations in addition to coaching students across the gamut of standardized tests. Working with students highlighted the importance of both deep understanding of and technical proficiency with mathematical concepts, so I pursued and received a Master's of Arts in Teaching from the University of Southern California and a California single-subject teaching credential in mathematics. Since then, I have continued to tutor students one-on-one while also developing my skills as a classroom teacher. Sarah is super smart. I believe she graduated high school in three years. Every so often, uh, with some of my frustrations that arise with adult life, I'll post something snarky about it. Like, why is it that we learn the Pythagorean theorem, but not how to do our taxes? Because never in life has anyone asked me to find the area of a triangle. But each year, I have to calculate my taxes and figure out what I owe the government, even though they know. And if I don't get it right, I go to jail. And the tax code is like 75,000 pages. But I digress. (laughs) I will get frustrated with things in life like that, and I'll, you know, poke fun at school or, you know, particularly mathematics. And Sarah will chime in and let me know why mathematics is important and why it has practical application in life and why these concepts help us think in different ways other than just finding the area of triangles. Analytical thinking is super important and it's. A foundation of philosophy, and it intertwines with physics and you know all of the intersections of the rules of life as we try to figure this thing out. Mathematics underlies everything, from the golden ratio found in nature to calculating the gratuity on your restaurant bill for my Americans. I found Sarah's advocacy for mathematics to be intriguing, and not only that, but the way that she communicated was one that was very disarming and not uh, offensive. And I was always educated and always uh, made to see things from a different perspective after interactions with her. And so I was like, yo, let's talk. Like, let's have a conversation. I'm trying to see what is in that gorgeous, beautiful brain of yours and get a little bit of knowledge dropped on me and share that with my listeners. And I was not disappointed. I walked away from this conversation a smarter person, and I think that you will too. Well, I am here with a friend from back in the day, back in high school. Um, If I remember correctly, you graduated in like three years, right? Mm -hmm. Is that? Yep. Um, You're always super smart. And that is one thing that I remember about you. Um, But it's been forever. And I know that we connect online. Um, Sometimes I'll post things about like taxes and like, you know, learning uh, life skills and like, but it'll be a joke about you know, but I learned the Pythagorean theorem instead, or something like that. You'll know, be like, actually, math is important, and here's why. And so you call me on my stuff, and I definitely appreciate that about you. But uh, Sarah, if you had to introduce yourself and give your elevator pitch, who's Sarah?
1: Um. Well. Sarah's me. Uh, I am a math teacher and tutor. um, But more broadly, I guess just an educator, it's always been something I was drawn to. Um, I've also done a lot of outdoor education and experiential education. And it just really fascinates me how kids can learn and grow and do so much more than people think they're capable of um, if you just kind of give them the opportunity.
0: So talk a little bit about that. Like if, you know, without being specific on like kid or anything, what are some experiences that stand out in your mind that uh, have been, you know, fruitful or valuable for you in this endeavor?
1: Well, like thinking about my field studies students, um, so Worthington Field Studies is an organization that's been taking students from central Ohio to camp and hike and explore in the... U.S. since the 60s, actually. Um, And that was where I got my first really big dose of, you know, being in charge of young people Um, and just like literal mountains, right? You're at the bottom, you look up, you're like, I can't climb this. And the kids, you know, maybe someone's feeling a little tired that day or a little low, or they just don't feel like as athletic as some of the other kids and just seeing how powerful, you know, encouragement, but also, you know, kind of holding them to it, not putting anyone in a situation, obviously, that would be dangerous or beyond their capabilities, but giving them sort of a safe opportunity to try, right? The worst thing that happens is you don't make it to the top of the mountain. You try again another time or you find a different mountain or you train more, whatever. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the same thing I try and do in my classroom with students. Um, you know, we have a reassessment process where I teach, which is really nice, which means that a student who's not ready to be successful with a concept, like, that's fine. It'll hurt their grade for a little while, but then they'll practice, they'll, they'll learn a little more, then they can try again. And I think, yeah, just all those opportunities to, to tell kids you can do this, just, you know, maybe you won't do it this time, that doesn't mean you won't ever do it. Um, And like a negative standout experience, I guess, was one of my tutoring students. So I was a a one-on-one tutor for a long time before I moved to classroom teaching. Um, She had a math teacher who basically told her, no, you can't try to do the more advanced math next year in eighth grade because you'll fail. Like point blank, you'll fail. And I was just like, that's dumb. Like, I I think I could be a teacher because I know not, at least not to say that. Um, and so that's one of the things that kind of spurred me to actually get my credential and go into classroom teaching just because I was like, kids kind of rise or fall to whatever expectations you set for them. Um, and so I think we, we do them a disservice by spoon feeding them or, you know, expecting too little. Hmm.
0: So what do you think about like the psychology of encouragement and stuff, because it seems like you take more of a, a positive, like uh, motivational uh, approach to teaching. And um, it seems like this holistic approach, like it's not just here are the techniques, it's more about the person. You know, what have you found that's special about that?
1: Well, especially with math, because it seems to a lot of people like such a very specific thing Um But it really, it's training your brain to think analytically, which I have pestered you about occasionally on Instagram. (laughs) Um, And so it truly is one of those things where there's going to be a spectrum of ability, right? Not everyone is going to be amazing at math and want to pursue high-level math. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't push yourself to see how far you can go and how much you can understand. Um, And... I guess I'm pretty positive with my students. I sort of like when they're wrong, I tell them, but it's also good to be wrong. Like that's how you learn. So I think think I'm just trying to create uh, an environment, both when I'm tutoring and when I'm teaching and when I'm out in the woods on field studies where like try things, I'm here to support you ask questions if you have them, but at some point go for it and see what happens. And if you fail miserably, okay, who cares? Like getting, to, getting used to the idea that you're going to try some things and be bad at them, um, especially at first, I think is really healthy. Um, and I think a lot of students don't get the opportunity for that. I, I feel like even a shift since we were in school to now there's so much emphasis placed on the grades and the completion and the graduation and what school you go to and graduating in a certain amount. Like, that's good. But also, how about the learning and how about the the development of the children as, um, you know, young adults with perspectives and goals and hopes and dreams and not just, I don't know, jellyfish f- floating through their lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you talked about like the spectrum of ability and spectrum of learning and different people have, you know, different skills. Maybe someone doesn't want to be the best mathematician in the world. How do you help students level set their own expectations um, throughout this process? Because, you know, I can imagine that you see some people and you're like, oh, they have an ability, you know, they have some magic in them. And you know, there is, you know, development that can take place, but there's some students that you're like, ah, you know, maybe this isn't for them. Maybe Should be a painter, (laughs) you know, like how do you help people manage their expectations in this process?
1: Um, so the it's kind of interesting to think about. So, with tutoring for test prep, it's more of a mathematical calculation. Um, like if you're starting at the 50th percentile, a good target is to get to the 75th. Now, usually kids can do a little better than that, and with the pandemic. Everything has been kind of turned sideways. Um, but I really, in that context, focus more on the process. Um, if it, I mean it's kind of like weightlifting. Um, test prep is much more athletic in a lot of ways than it is academic, Um, you know, if you show up to the gym and lift weights every day or, you know, every other day, you shouldn't lift every day. Um, But if you show up and you do it on a consistent basis and you, you know, slowly increase your weights, like you might not be Olympic level powerlifter, but like you can kind of see what your trends are and and see how far you can push yourself. So, um, you know, usually I like to set first goals and have students kind of define, you know, aside from the score, what is gonna happen on your next practice test after we've done some tutoring that's gonna make you feel like you're doing this differently, that you're doing this in a more um, intentional way and that you have more control over the test you're taking versus just kind of reacting to the questions coming at you. Um, In the classroom, I sort of do the same thing. so I'm lucky to teach someplace where we have a very um, excellent department and we use like proficiency scales and mastery grading and allowing for reassessments. And so I give the kids the scale we use, like this is what we're we're teaching you in this next unit. This is sort of the levels of each skill. Um, and, you know, we do a practice test in class a few days before the real test and I have students grade themselves and, um, kind of assess, okay, if you're at below basic right now, aim for the basic, right? You can you can push and aim for the proficient later as you develop mastery of, of the basic skills. If you're at, um, you know, mastered, right? If you're at the advanced level, you got everything right. What are you going to do to make sure that stays there? What, what are you going to do to make sure that you can use that for the whole semester and make sure that that, it not only happens on the test, but you know what more can you do to keep developing your understanding? Because um, it's never learning's never done. That sounds so cheesy, but it's true.
0: <laughs> it really is. There's always more to know, and uh, it sounds like what you're saying is you're teaching students to run their own race um, and putting milestones in front of them that are you know kind of a little bit of stretch for them, but uh, within their capability. And so it is in that sweet spot of like you know motivation while at the same time being realistic is that a good way to describe it?
1: Yeah, and I like. I think the way my class is set up, every single student in there could get pretty close to a hundred percent in the class if if that's what they wanted to do. Like, I think we're very clear about the skills, um, but it's also okay with me that that's not the the goal for most of my students. Um, but I do try to encourage them to like push themselves beyond like especially some of the kids who you know they know they don't want to go to college um you know they have a they have a plan um i still think it's a good exercise to say okay but you're getting like an 85% right now like what would you have to do differently to push yourself to that 90 or you're getting a 65% right now what would you have to do to push yourself to that 70 just because I think math is a really good tool in in learning that running your own race thing, that they really are in charge of their lives. Um, and this is maybe one of the first times they get to experience it because it, it's really in their hands. And so, um, yeah, just te- teaching them how to go for what they want versus check the box and move on to the next thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think... Uh... That analytical thinking that you're talking about is at the core of it, and I mean, it teaches people how to approach life like more than it does regurgitating, you know, facts or information or algorithm. You know, yeah. With that, I know one time we were talking about uh, times tables, and I said that for me was when anxiety manifested in my life. I was just like, yeah. oh my god, like you know, I know how to multiply, but when you put me under the gun for you know a minute, you have to finish this. I would just freeze and I would get so nervous and then I would get negative feedback about it. And, uh, you know, it was off-putting. Where can improvements be made in the teaching of mathematics?
1: I mean, that's like a PhD times 100 in there. But um, (laughs) what what I was sort of getting at when we were talking about that is there's, one, there's so much asked of teachers right now. Um, from the social emotional stuff to just an incredible amount of bureaucracy, um, and so by and large, I think teachers are doing the best they can, especially after these last crazy couple of years. I also think, and I'm just speaking from my own experience in like in my teacher preparation program, uh, there are a lot of especially early teachers, so like early elementary, mid elementary. Um, who themselves maybe had a bad experience with math or just don't feel that confident with it. And I think that often gets translated. You know, I, I had a very different experience um, with times tables. And I think that was in part because I had I was lucky to have teachers who were like pretty... I'm sure I'm going to say they're old and realize that they were the age I am now, but (laughs) they had been in the career for a while and they were were comfortable and they were confident in what they were teaching and and what the expectations were. They weren't worried about whether enough kids were going to pass a standardized test. They weren't worried about whether their job was on the line. Like they knew what they were doing and their sort of calm confidence allowed us to say like, like I didn't get. I didn't pass those timed tests the very first time um, I did them. And my mom had to do flashcards with me, which I, like, did not appreciate. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, it was more like this is an important tool. Like, if you want to be able to access all these other things, then you need to have this skill in your pocket, right? You need to see the way numbers can be composed and decomposed so that when you get to bigger things, like, Factoring, or even you know, non-mathematical things, just being able to see the pieces and parts and how they fit together, um, and so you know, they held us to that. Okay, if you didn't get it in this time, you have to do it again. If you didn't get 100, you have to do it again. But there was never any um, like negative emotion associated with that. I, I didn't feel coming from the teachers. Like I never felt like they were frustrated. Um, and so I think doing more to support teachers at those lower levels with being not just like competent enough to teach the math for the kids to pass the test and move on but like really feeling confident to play with mathematical concepts and and see that you know there's not that much going on. Like there are not that many different things, but each component is, you know, looking at it from a different direction. Like I always tell my students, there's no such thing as subtraction. It's just addition of a negative number going backwards. You know, there's no such thing as division. It's just multiplication by a fraction. And like, yes, subtraction and division exist. But if you can see it as, you know, two sides of the same coin rather than separate things, you start to see how the pieces fit together better. And it makes it easier for the kids to learn. They have a better depth of understanding. But I also think like in in your case, when you were feeling stressed by that, um, that was probably your teacher's stress. Like there was something about getting students to accomplish some level on these time tests by some date that they were not confident in themselves as, as teachers being able to accomplish that. And that was translated to the students. So I think figuring out how to fix that, how to solve that. Would be the place to start, maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I know that that, uh, you know, like you said, there could be papers written on this and PhDs on it, but uh, I think that's a, a great observation. Um, it almost seems like there's a certain level of competence required and comfort with uh, just the process around school, if that makes sense. Just like you know how the scoring works, how the testing works, and you know what the expectations are. Of the teacher, and they have to get comfortable navigating those things before they feel free enough to kind of play with mathematical concepts and kind of find their style, if you will. Is that a good way to wrap it up? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's why turnover is such a huge issue. And, you know, you might have seen articles or not um, of how many teachers are leaving the profession. Like, it's not just new teachers who haven't found their footing that are just burning out quickly, like that's been a problem for a long time. But you also have a lot of really experienced good teachers who just, you know, they're over it. They, they um, the bureaucracy is getting to be too much or the changes with COVID or just like the shift in responsibility of parenting um, and like teaching stu- kids how to be, you know, people. Um, I think- we're really losing some wonderful educators who have a lot to to give kids still and who have a lot to teach their colleagues and that it's going to have a really negative effect on you know, a generation really of education because we won't have these models. We won't have these supports um, in a lot of the schools. And unfortunately, that's going to probably be more true in the schools that are already suffering and the kids who need the best support the most. So um, I worry about that, but not where I am, which is nice, I guess.
0: <laughs> that's good. I mean, I guess it's like a silver lining. Um, yeah. yeah. So what do you think would be, I guess, like the lowest hanging fruit. So we kind of talked about, you know, a little bit about ways that it could be improved, but what do you think would be like the easiest for maybe those areas that are impoverished that um, they're dealing with some of that social, emotional side of it that's uh, a little more prevalent, if you will?
1: Uh, a properly funded welfare state, don't at me. Um, <laughs> no, but like that that's, it, it's kind of part of the problem. Like um, we have put so much onto schools. Like think about one of the biggest things people were freaking out about at the beginning of the pandemic was how many students rely on school for their food. Yeah. Like school is the sort only source of healthy food for way too many kids. That's not an education problem, yet somehow that's been put on education. We have mental health crises, um, You know, kids who are exposed to trauma, kids, even just kids whose parents are, you know, working to make ends meet month to month and need a little extra support because that's that's stressful for families. Um, You know, so providing mental health resources, adequate counseling, um, you know, housing, if you're worried about where you're sleeping, you know, if you are um, in a shelter or you're sleeping in a hotel because that's like the most your family can do. Like, of course, that's going to affect your ability to concentrate and engage with what's happening in school. So I think to help education, we need to really look at the actual work that needs to be done with regards to making sure people have the basics. You know, it's not um, a moral failing to be poor or have, you know, be in a moment where you're not making ends meet or struggling. And the amount of that that falls on kids and the school systems is is too much. And of course, we're going to do a, an inadequate job at it because it's not our job. Um, and we do it because we care. Like teachers become teachers because they love children for the most part. Um, I can think of some exceptions to that from our own experience. but um, But for the most part, like, Teachers will rise to the occasion because they truly care about their students and it takes a toll on us, but, you know, it's worth it. Um, But we really just need a bigger look at why we're becoming a much more stratified society economically and why that seems to be okay with people and how to um, reverse some of the policies that got us into this place, but not an expert on that.
0: I did College Mentors for Kids For a little while and as one of the activities uh, we would ride the bus with the kids and you know hang out with them for their bus route and just see um, how they were living and it was very eye-opening to see the places that we were dropping off some of these kids and I'm like man you know I don't necessarily feel comfortable (laughs) you know where we're going even though we're on a school bus like we're dropping this kid by themselves here and (laughs) you realize how much these people face Outside of just school, just learning and the challenges associated with that, um, hunger is a dominating, dominating thought. You can't think about much else when you get those hunger pangs going on. So, what do you want people to know about teachers or educators uh, that they may not notice? Because I know that you know you have this role not only as educator but also you know kind of become a pseudo caretaker, also uh, kind of like a therapist. Uh, so many facets of the job. What do you want people to know that maybe they don't know?
1: Um, it's it's hard to say because uh, I'm pretty new as a classroom teacher. This is only my second year in the classroom. Um, but I think especially right now, just how hard teachers have been working. Um, you know, during the pandemic, especially when we were doing remote learning, which um, you know, my school did for quite a while. Like the teachers who had been around for a long time, it was the hardest they've worked in a really long time because, um, you know, getting everything set digitally and we were checking in with our students' social emotional well being and we were reaching out to families and making ourselves available, you know, extra hours so that we could support students. Um, and it's really disheartening to hear from people when they say, oh, you know, the distance learning was a wasted year. Like, was it perfect? No. Um, And I think, you know, definitely some teachers were able to be more successful with it than others. Um, But like, there was still a global pandemic. And I think that um, it's just, it's, it's hard to work so hard and know that you're, you know, you're not doing, as much as you wish you could be for the students. Like, yes, some students do better sitting in a classroom, Um, but that doesn't mean we were trying to like be lazy or we just wanted to sit at home on our computers. Like I spend less time preparing. Now, it it still takes me some time to prepare for lessons, but it's less time preparing to teach in person than to teach online. So I guess That would be the one thing for for people to think about or know generally about teachers is it's been a rough couple years. And to constantly hear that we're lazy or, you know, that that year was wasted is it's hard. And especially thinking about the teacher shortage that's just coming up and going to hit us all really hard soon. Um, You know, maybe think a little bit more about what was actually going on and cut cut us a little slack.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um Yeah. uh, it was an unprecedented year. Uh, it was the first time. That I mean, word. people had to expand their internet. People had to really figure out how to live life again and like do their job differently. I can't imagine. You know, you have all these things that work in person. You can read emotions. You can see people's faces and you know read if they're kind of understanding things or not. Um, people can have side conversations and, uh, yeah, that's all beautiful and stuff. But you take someone and you go, hey, you know how you were doing it that way for a while. Let's see if you can make it happen from your living room while everyone else is in their living room. I mean, that alone is,
1: is If you're ridiculous. lucky. <laughs> you're right. You know? Yeah. If they're lucky, they have a living room and not like 10 other people in the house running around making noise. And their parent hasn't asked them to watch their younger siblings. And like there was, there was so much going on for everybody last year that it's almost like because we were able to get it pretty close to normal, we forgot how abnormal everything was. Like even if we had been in school, just the fact that there was this like crazy illness going around that, you know, isn't scary for a lot of people. Um, and people were getting sick, like that's a lot. So yeah, just a little grace, you know, we showed grace to the kids. It would be nice to get a little grace back.
0: I feel that. It seems like one of those jobs, like I do HR and I did it for the people and, uh- it might be a little different than I thought it was going to be, but it seems kind of like HR and IT in the sense that things are going well. Like no one really says good job. They never really like give you too much thanks. But the moment one little thing happens that's, you know, slightly wrong or slightly uh, abnormal, people freak out about it. And so it's kind of like baseline is no feedback or nothing. And then, you know, it's just kind of all negative. And so, um, how do you yourself manage your emotions? How do you? deal with all the range of emotions that comes with a role like yours
1: um well luckily i have this early experience taking kids on field studies and so you know if you're letting a group of four teenagers say okay they're gonna hike up that trail and they'll be back by this time you know that's a lot of trust and a lot of you know it I know they need to do it. It's developmentally important, but it still makes me nervous every time. You know, I still like worry about them. So then, getting into a classroom, like that, actually feels a lot easier. They're all there. It's just math. Like, you know, it, if one day doesn't go that well, it's not the end of the world. Um, I, it, it, was kind of a tough year last year, just like not being able to help as many students. Um, and so one of the things that helped that but was a hard lesson to learn was how to kind of like let go, not give up on students, always check in, always, you know, give them the reminders. But also recognizing that, you know, they are agents in their education and some of them are not ready to be successful in that course. Um, and that, that's OK. And they'll try it again next year. They'll do summer school Um and so, kind of thinking about my role, like what is my job and what can I actually do? and and thinking like, am I do I feel like I'm putting in my best effort, right? I can't control whether a student puts in their best effort. Um, but I do feel pretty confident that I'm most of the time putting in my best effort for them. Um, and then also just like, taking some time to do things outside. Like, obviously that's really important for me. I mean, I've been um, like weightlifting and rock climbing. I did fall off a bouldering problem yesterday. And so I'm a little sour on that. (laughs) (laughs) It was inside. It was like not a big deal, but I was just like, uh, well, maybe a few days off of this now. Um, But yeah, just like doing active things, having fun and like playing games sometimes with the kids, like just... It's still math games, you know, still always an opportunity to learn, but we played something that was like basically among us, but not called that for proprietary reasons. And basically they had to answer math questions to earn points that then they could use to investigate people or, um, you know, call a meeting and vote. So um, that was really fun. And just, I I played just as one of the the players, not as like the head, whatever, the overseer. Um, and it was just fun, like you know, trash talking at each other and like, you know, interacting as human beings and not as I'm in charge and you have to listen to me Yeah, and just trying to hit that vibe all the time, even when you're not playing games, but more like I know how to do this. And hopefully you will learn how to do this. And like, we can explore this together and ask me questions and not like, not like getting frustrated when they don't get it right away, knowing that they'll take their time and they'll, they'll get there.
0: How do you manage that? Because people get really frustrated when uh, I know myself. Like if I'm trying to explain something to someone, and I do it like you know, two or three different ways, and they're not getting it. Then I know it's it's a personal flaw of mine. I start to question myself. I'm like, am I not explaining this right? And so then I get kind of like you know flustered by it. How do you manage uh, you know those times when it's taken a particularly long time to explain something?
1: Well. It is easier doing the one-on- one tutoring in that sense because we have the time to take. And sometimes at school, I do feel like I wish I had more time. Um, I maybe I need to put this a little more on the kids, but like I also I don't think that most students, when I'm in that position where I've like tried a few different things and they're not getting it um, at school, um, I don't I don't think they're actually not trying, right? I'm not frustrated with them. Sometimes we just step away from it, right? I just say, okay, I think your brain is melting. Let's look at this other thing. Let's come back to this. Like, let's take a pause. Um, sometimes they just need to, like, think about it a little longer. Um, or sometimes they just need to, like, work through it and then work backwards through it. Um, so I think just having a lot of patience... Um, I'm trying to think, like, what else, if if I'm explaining something and someone's not getting it, sometimes I'll just have the kid, I'll say, like, okay, I'm not making sense to you right now. Like, what's the last thing I said that you did understand? And, like, what would you do next? Or, like, where? what is your more specific question? Like, I try and get them to kind of let me see what's going on inside their brain a little bit more. Um, and especially with tutoring, but I try and bring this into teaching as well. Like the more the students are explaining, the better their understanding is and the better they're learning. And so even when it's a thing that they don't understand, being able to ask simple questions like, okay, well, what did you start with? Like, what else do you know? Did you read the whole problem? Is I say that like a thousand times a day. And usually by the time they've actually read the whole problem, their question is gone. Um, but, but yeah, just like, involving them in the process because it's it's a two-way street and so maybe like maybe it's even a vocabulary word that I'm using that they just don't remember or they never learned um so yeah I think I think that just like involving the person I'm trying to explain to so that and, and getting them to just explain as much as they know
0: yeah it sounds like uh you treat people like people, you know, wherever they are emotionally, wherever they are <laughs> uh, on a maturity level. It's like, hey, I'm going to meet you where you are and I'm going to try to you know, help you grow um, and expand what that is. What are some ways that you've learned to communicate more effectively with people? Because you're communicating with people that are on a different range of ability. Um, you're explaining concepts that you have been familiar with and know uh, kind of at an expert level. Um, how have you found uh, the best ways to communicate with people? If that makes sense.
1: Uh, by finding a lot of really terrible ways to communicate <laughs> with them, honestly. Um, again, like the the tutoring for me was just an incredible opportunity to practice questioning techniques and um, kind of get to get to know both common mistakes, but just reading students and, and kind of getting to figure out where they are um, and not being super precious about it. Like sometimes I'll be talking in front of my class and the words are just coming out all garbled. And I was like, pause, time out. Let's try that again. Like not being afraid of making errors, Um And just recognizing and acknowledging like, okay, that didn't work. Let's try it this way. Or like, let me start that again. Um, I have a few students who speak essentially no English this year. And um, our curriculum is very text heavy. So I've been, you know, on Duolingo every day since the beginning of the school year, trying to get enough Spanish under my belt to be able to at least explain a little bit better. It's still horrible. But, um, but like, I can say like add or subtract. I, I'm pretty sure I can say multiply. I haven't quite figured out divide. It's probably really easy. But like even just like little things and and modeling like, okay, I'm I'm trying here and I'm happy to fall on my face if it helps you understand more. Um, and I think that has helped them be more like able to, to try things and ask questions and like they know I'm... I'm, you know, going to be patient with them um, and they're willing to be patient with me. And so it's kind of a two way street. Um, I also in college, instead of studying abroad, I actually did a semester with the National Outdoor Leadership School. And one of the big components of their curriculum is uh, communication, Um, uh, communication between, you know, peers, between um, like leaders to their team, from the team to leaders. And we practiced it every day. We would have a student leader each day. And then after that day's hike, especially on like the backpacking section, you know, we would sit down and we would talk about like, this is um, this is something you did that was helpful for me. And this is why, you know, this was something that happened that made me feel this way. And so just being really um, calm and intentional and and owning it and not communicating in a way that makes other other people feel attacked um, or less than. But just like, truly, like if I'm telling you this, it's because I want to help you get better at whatever you're doing. Um, And so that was really invaluable training, I think.
0: That's really cool. Um, I personally feel communication is uh, one of the greatest indicators of success. Um, for a person. And one of the skills that'll take you the furthest. Um, I think in order to be able to get buy-in for anything, you have to be able to communicate your ideas effectively and um, convey them in a way that people understand them. So um, I always thought it was cool when people were able to Uh, cross bridges, I guess you want to call it, you know, being able to communicate with different age groups and, you know, different maturity levels and stuff like that. So I commend you for that. And learning Spanish, I mean, that's one of those little things that people don't think about, you know, you're going above and beyond for that too. Like, so, I mean, you said it kind of cast, you know, got on Duolingo, but like.
1: (laughs) But I can, you know, some of these kids are coming from unimaginable situations. Um, Like, I don't know. I don't have kids. I have my cats, but, you know, they're a lot less demanding than kids. I'm thankful, you know, I have a pretty chill life, so I have the opportunity. Um, I also only teach part-time, so I'm only at my school on um, every other day. So I have fewer students, so I do have more time to invest um, in in those students. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like, it's something that I can do, so why shouldn't I?
0: Well, I think that's a, uh a trait that's inherent in you that's not in a lot of people. You know, I think there are some good people in the world that have that trait, and not that other people are bad, but some people just don't think about others as a natural starting place. So I think that's really cool. Without getting, like, super political, I know the uh, big debate now is about mathematics and schools. Um, You know, talk about Common Core and stuff like that, and people are like, it's the devil. Why are they changing math? Why are they making it different? I can't even teach my kids math and um, arguments on the other side are like, well, yeah, if you can't teach your kids math, maybe that's a failing of the system that you grew up in. And maybe this is an improvement that you're just not comfortable with. Um, This helps people think more spatially and see how numbers react uh, or interact, you know, in uh, a more visual standpoint. And that's kind of what you were telling me, like when with timetables and stuff, it's helping you uh, understand how numbers work. Uh, What do you think is the thing that people miss the most? about the Common Core change in math?
1: It's funny because most of the people who have children or had children when Common Core was coming out learned what was called, I forget if it was like the 70s, but they learned what, you know, boomers would have called new math. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is not a new thing. Um, and if you actually look at the standards you know what do we want students to be able to do the idea of having a sort of common pacing across the country is really a good one kids move around you know i have kids coming in from this school and that school you know they show up halfway through this you know second semester and if curriculums were more aligned it would be easier for those students so that's like one of the things is part of this is to make it easier for students um if if their family has to move if you have to switch schools you know for whatever reason um and then when you actually look at the skills it's not it's not really absurd things that are being asked you know um solve a system of equations graphically whatever um you know that's something that everyone's been taught in an algebra class or a math 1 class like For a long time, like no one is arguing with that, but you call it a common core standard and people freak out. And so I think there's like a disconnect between what people think it is and what it actually is. And then the ways that are being taught, like you said, you know, doing it more visually, seeing how it fits together. That's actually trying to go back to an older way when kids were able to sort of play with the numbers more and and understand how the pieces fit together. Um, For a little while, there was this push, or not even a little while at this point, but there was this like really big push on, you know, standardized testing. And by the way, standardized testing like generally is not a bad thing, but it's being used improperly. Just like that's my whole little side side soapbox. Um, But... um, you know, the goal was get kids to be able to produce a correct answer as often as possible, as fast as possible. And when you're doing that, that's where that, you know, fear comes in. That's where that algorithm, you know, memorize this algorithm comes in. And like, I look at what some of my, you know, math tutoring students are doing versus what some of my classroom students are doing. And It's interesting because in some respects, some of the things my math tutoring students can do are, like, they're able to get to the right answer faster, but when any little thing changes, they don't see how it's, oh, the same thing that they've been doing, but backwards. Whereas my students, like, they, in the classroom, they might be taking a little bit longer to understand something because I am actually, you know, Holding the expectation pretty high, I'm 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 asking them to understand what they're doing, not just produce an answer. And when they get it, they get it. You know, it's there. They can understand it. They can use it backwards and forwards. And not everyone, you know, of course, it's never everyone. Um, but I think that's that's really what Common Core was trying to accomplish. Again. And then, of course, you had the whole bureaucracy thing, right? Um, here's new textbooks. Here's new, you know, curricula that we're not going to give you time or, like, support to train on or adequate time and support to train on. And so it gets all, you know, mixed up. And then the teachers feel salty about it. And so when they're teaching it, you know, the kids pick up on that. Sometimes because the teachers are flat out saying, like, oh, this new way, like, doesn't make any sense. And sometimes <laughs> right. it's just that subconscious thing. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's the implementation more than anything that I think just got kind of muddled, but the the core of it um, is not that. And it's not that like different either.
0: Yeah. I realized like, you know, you sent me the link to it and I checked that out a little bit. And it's like, the point of it is to help students understand the why versus memorizing mm-hmm. It's to establish, you know, goalposts or milestones kind of for each grade level that, Will translate, like you're saying, if people move or things like that, they'll be able to to not feel too far behind. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't actually dictate the method of teaching. And Mm -hmm. so the teacher gets to play to their style within that. And I was like, that's that seems a lot more loose than people are saying. Yeah. You know, and people are freaking out about it. It seems like it's just like, Hey, here's some guidelines, like they should probably be here by the time they get to this age. Like I, I don't know. I don't see the big issue with it.
1: Yeah. And like there is maybe a debate to be had about the um, like tying it to grade levels and, you know, the because brain development has a lot of influence on how you're learning. And so, you know, if you're trying to attack abstract concepts before your brain is ready for it, it can be really confusing. Like you can see a shift when, when a kid just suddenly like gets how to use a variable and how to combine combine like terms, like teenagers, adolescents and teenagers brains are growing just at incredible rates. Like a 16 year old you talk to in April is going to be very different than the 16 year old you talk to in October. Maybe not in like visible ways, maybe, um, but like just in what their brain is able to organize and put together and connect. So, um, you know, I think there could be debate around Should we be tying these math standards to specific grades or age groups, or can we like have it be just a a sort of spectrum, a progression that kids work through as they grow? And you know, they start where they start and they end, you know, hopefully well beyond where they started. Um, But that for each student, that's different. Um, I think with educational technology, that is hopefully soon close, but it takes a long time to make any systemic changes.
0: Yeah. like you said, people don't like change, it's slow, it takes a while for people to get used to, and maybe in some situations, you gotta wait for somebody to phase out of the system before you know other people will be uh, receptive to it. So yeah, it has its challenges. Um, totally. Tell me about some of this education technology. You, you casually mentioned that. Uh, what's out there? You know, I'm not too privy.
1: Oh, I mean, I don't really know either, but like even if you just look at something like Khan Academy, like anyone who feels like they're not a math person should just go to Khan Academy and like poke around. Not not necessarily just the videos. I tend to use the videos when I'm like stuck on something or I have my students look at that. But like doing the practice problems and working through and, you know, it can – you can – do a set of problems and then it'll tell you kind of what to do next or like what you should work on next. And so, you know, it's fairly, I mean, I'm going to say fairly basic, but it's probably got a ton of computing behind it, um, to even accomplish that. Um, but like we have, um, computer adaptive tests, um, where, you know, it, it throws questions at you that get progressively more and more difficult. And then, um, at some point you're sort of leveling off, right? You can answer it this level of question, but when you take it to the next level, then you stop being as successful. And you know, each person is kind of in a different spot there. And I actually haven't used that in um, my teaching or even my tutoring. I'm thinking about, I was like, an EMT for a hot second. I I did the training for like wilderness purposes um, and I let that expire. But the test I took was adaptive. So it's not just based on the computer, but it would actually say like, okay, you got this question, right? Maybe it's a basic first aid question. Let's ask you about like this more advanced first aid question. And then there were definitely some that were like how to administer medicines. And I was like, oh, this is the beyond the the EMT level because, like, that's not something I'm supposed to do, which is why I have no idea how to answer this. But it was a good, like, it was an interesting experience actually taking an adaptive test versus a computer-based test. Um, So hopefully we'll have more of that. Um, And just, like, even the ability to to track students' um, understanding um, throughout their... um, time in school um, and track, like, not just their grades, but as, as we move more into, like, standards-based um, assessments and, and mastery grading, like, seeing, seeing the trends and then hopefully using that data to analyze, like, okay, you know, when a student is starting here entering high school, you know, we can expect, on average, you know, that they might make it to this level, but also maybe that, you know, this it below this certain level means that they're really going to struggle. And so maybe we can identify them for extra supports, just basically using computers and statistics to better support students. Um, I don't know like the specific ed techs really beyond what I would use to like assign homework or practice to my students. Yeah.
0: But that's, I mean, that is super interesting because you can really hone in on people's gaps and, you know, fill those in uh, more effectively, I guess. And, yeah, that adaptive testing sounds kind of wild.
1: Uh, it's cool.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're very fortunate to live at a time where if you want to know something that you can just go to the internet and look it up and find a couple people explaining it to you in different ways. Because um, I remember even like coming up in elementary school... We had to like learn what a computer was and learn how to like use it. And there wasn't really Google. It was like ask Jeeves and it was terrible, you know? But
1: what's interesting about that is like we think that kids these days, kids these days, I sound like I'm (laughs) a hundred. But, uh, you know, we think that, oh, they're digital natives. They know how to do this. Most of the stuff they interact with when they're young is very like UI or UX, whatever. Clearly not a computer like computer person. Um, but it's like it's meant to be as simple as possible. Like think about TikTok or real. like anything that's like it's algorithm, it's short. It just sort of tells you there's no troubleshooting. You know, when we were in middle school and high school, if your computer like was doing something funny, you had to like go into the the depths of it and figure it out or sometimes like reset it or like, I don't know, maybe you'll want to cut this out, but like if you'd ever downloaded something from like Kazaa or LimeWire or Napster, like sometimes that was a virus and you'd have to reset it without telling your parents anything. And there wasn't, you know, you couldn't really like look up how to fix it because there wasn't that kind of information. Um, and like with the, the Ask Jeeves and some of those older search engines, like we were taught how to ask a question, like not necessarily the whole Boolean search, whatever, but just like, You have to think about like what you actually want to ask. And that's a skill that a lot of students don't have. And I think that's part of why the, I I think that's part of what the pandemic school experience revealed is that students are not um, being sort of taught how to use all these tools because we think that they just, oh, they grow up around it. So they know, Um, but they don't like, one of the coolest lessons I did student teaching right before the pandemic started, actually, so we were in person, it was this whole lesson for math, two on construction. So, like, you know, making a set of perpendicular lines using a compass and a straight edge. And, you know, the classic, when are we ever going to use this? That probably never, but instead of trying to get the kids to correctly, like, and quickly reproduce these specific constructions, I said... Use any tool you want. You can Google stuff. You can use YouTube. You can like look at pictures, look at like infographics, look and see if the words, you know, following step by step instructions make the most sense. See if a video makes the most sense. And the groups were so engaged, and like someone would be like, "Wait, wait, wait! Can you slow that video down?" Or someone else would be like, "Oh, wait! This, um, you know, this list also has pictures." And they were really figuring out, you know, what questions to ask, how to type it in, and like what they needed to be able to to learn. And so that was really fun. And I, I should probably do something like that with my students this year. They don't have the same lesson, but I can probably find a good lesson to do that with. But yeah, like that, that skill that's come so naturally to those of us who had to like figure it out because computers were this new thing, they didn't, the kids now don't actually get that experience. Huh,
0: yeah. I never thought about it that way. I was, you know, of the school of thought, Yeah, they grow up with it. They should know how to use it. Oh, my, I see my nephews and stuff like using cell phones and stuff. And yeah, you're right. It's just a simple user interface. It's not really teaching troubleshooting, which is, that's, I'm sitting here kind of mind blown. Right,
1: but like the troubleshooting, but also just like asking the right question, you know, kids are always like, oh, you know, I pressed the wrong button or like my calculator gave me the wrong answer. I was like, no, like. The technology does exactly what you ask of it pretty much all the time. But you have to ask it the right thing. Even something as simple as putting parentheses around a negative value that's being squared. Like, that, if you don't use those, that changes the value. It changes what you're asking the calculator to do. And so you have to understand what you're doing, even if we have this technology to make the doing it easier.
0: Yeah. And that's actually when I was reading the Common Core stuff, it was talking about, I think they use specifically, like, mnemonics. And, like... Uh, the goal is to help people understand the reason behind the mnemonic rather than just memorize the mnemonic. And like I mean, it was like PEMDAS, PEMDAS, PEMDAS. Like, <laughs> yeah. ah, it's just like stuck in my head, you know? Yeah. Like a robot.
1: <laughs> well, even that has changed too. Like some people are moving more toward like Gemma, G-E-M-A because, you know, parentheses exponents but then you also have like the stuff happening in the numerator of a fraction and the stuff happening in the denominator of a fraction. Those are groups, right? So instead of parentheses, you think about it as groups. E for exponents, sure, but then also like multiplication and division. If you teach students PEMDAS very frequently, they'll do multiplication and then division, or they'll do addition and then subtraction. And that's not always correct. And so um, you know, even the way we're presenting a mnemonic like that, can affect how they're processing what they're doing.
0: It literally, I mean, to this day, I do multiplication first, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, yeah,
1: yeah, I was
0: taught how to follow a set of rules rather than think when it comes to math. And I think you've exposed it. That's why I you know, wasn't too much of a fan of it. And you got to teach people how to think um, and empower them and give them the confidence to do so. I think that's wonderful. I'm going to pull the soapbox out. What's your beef with standardized testing?
1: Oh, my my beef is <laughs> that it's not a beef. Uh, people oh, okay. love to hate on it. Um, you know, So the standardized testing, in my mind, is sort of two big um, things. One, there's college admissions testing, which I've worked with a lot um, in my tutoring. And people hate on it because they're like, oh, my kid is a straight A student. They're, you know, a wonderful person. They're really smart, um, but they just don't test well on these standardized tests. And I've worked with a lot of students, maybe a thousand. I don't know. I've been tutoring for standardized tests for a decade now. So, and like, that's that was my only job for most of that time. And it's just not true. Um, A lot of kids get A's because they are compliant. They know how to work the system. They, um, you know, do what's asked of them, but they don't have a great depth of understanding. And that's not, I sound a little like mean. I don't mean that they're worth any less as people or (laughs) that, you know, they aren't able to accomplish things. But at the same time, like close to half or more than half of students right now are graduating from high school with an A GPA. So GPAs, you know, even think about like when we were in school, different teachers like, oh, you want this one because they're an easier grader, that one, right? Even within the same school, the same high grade doesn't mean the same thing from every teacher. And then you expand that to all the different classes and all the different school districts and all the different states. Um, And GPA is not really that useful. Um, I mean, it's not horrible, but the standardized tests give the same metric. So everybody is taking a normed test like a really studied although the, the SAT has also not been doing a great job with their changes lately but that's different different thing. But like generally speaking, it's it's a you know consistent instrument that we can use to to see how these students compare against each other. And should it be the only metric that's used? Definitely not. But there are A lot of students who are getting A's who can't read that well. I had one student in pre-calculus, honors pre-calculus class when she was a junior, and we were looking at um, a math problem on an ACT, and it talked about a plane, you know, like in in space, you know, points on a plane. And she, I said, okay, so like sketch, you know, a, a bounded plane. You know, planes are infinite, but like, let's sketch a general picture. And she drew an airplane. And like, she was in honors precalculus, but she didn't recognize that a math question wasn't talking about an airplane, wow. um, and so that's what standardized tests are um, useful for: is like seeing like who really has, who really knows what they're doing, and who doesn't. There are also a lot of kids who just can't read very well, um, and it's not the the time crunch for some of them. It's that they just, it's not something that they've been asked to do a lot of and like really explored deeply. Um, And it's really hard. Like I would not wanna teach English, I don't think, um, because I can't even wrap my head around how you would help someone like understand a text better. Like that seems so complicated to me. Like, let me teach them, you know, area under the curve a hundred times before I I do that. Um, But so, and then there are also, there's also a component of, okay, well, standardized tests just, you know, college admissions tests just reflect parents' income, you know, wealth of your neighborhood, whatever. And that's not wrong. But then you also have to imagine maybe that's reflecting, you know, more stability in the environment or more resources for those students as well. Um, and if you take the test away, then all you have is essays and GPA, which are easier to do better at when you can pay for tutoring. So it makes it even less fair in actuality. Um, So I don't know. I I think if people saw the discrepancies in standardized testing results as indicators of, oh, this is who needs support. These are areas that, like, let's figure out why these discrepancies exist that's much harder than saying, oh, let's just do away with testing because it's unfair. Um, Because doing away with testing really just benefits the people with more resources in the long run. Um, And to me, like, it's honestly, it's like a smoke detector is going off. And you take taking the test away is like taking the batteries out without checking to see if anything's actually on fire. Ah. Like, no one would do that. If a smoke detector is going off, hopefully, don't do right. that if your smoke <laughs> detector is going off. But um, but when it comes to testing, they're like, oh, you know, we're unhappy with, you know, the the demographic data in these results or like the fact that it is so closely correlated to family wealth. And it's like, OK, so rather than just not seeing that, well, what are we going to do about it? But that's much harder and much more expensive to fix. Um, and I think that sort of ties into like the school standardized testing The results should be used in the same way and it should never be used to like punish teachers. Like it should, standardized testing could be really, really useful as a tool for who needs support, but should not be used in a punitive way. Um, Unfortunately, it's easier to punish than to support. So
0: yeah. And it's, uh, you know, when people are running for school board and stuff like that, they're Focus on cutting cost and all the stuff that's associated with that, and it's easier to just make things go away, <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, that's unfortunate, and I wish we could get people to think more intellectually. And uh, you know, I've certainly appreciated your perspective. I've learned a lot um, over the course of this conversation, <laughs> and uh, very happy for it. And I would actually love to speak with you again at some point down the road if you're open to it. Yeah. Well, if you had the ears, eyes. And attention of everyone in the entire world. And you could deliver a message. What message would you deliver to the people?
1: Ooh. You did you did warn me this was coming up, but I had an idea and let me see if I can articulate it well. Um I guess short one would be stop saying you're not a math person. Because there are there is no such thing as a math person. There are people who practice math and improve their skills, and there are people who don't. Um, I think I mentioned to you, we talk a lot about, or like people will say all the time, oh, I'm just not a math person, you know, oh, here, someone else calculate the tip on a bill or whatever. And that's just accepted. But if, if the same thing were done with reading, right? If someone walked into a restaurant and the menus were handed out and someone at the table said, oh, can someone read the menu to me um, or just pick for me? Because I'm not really like a reading person. Like we would think that's crazy, yet that's exactly what we're doing with math. And when most of the adults in the world are saying things like that, or maybe not in the world, just like in my interactions, most of the adults I interact with, including a lot of teachers, they're just like very negative about math, even unintentionally. And I think just being conscious of that and trying to remove that from just the the air that the kids breathe would be hugely helpful in helping kids realize that you know they they can get out of it what they put into it in terms of learning math um, so that wasn't very short but that would be it stop saying you're not a math person and if you feel like you want to learn something do it there are so many good free resources out there right now. Khan Academy is one. Um, there's incredible community college math classes if you feel like having the the professor and the grade will help. You know, it starts all the way back at algebra, but like, no one is going to be worse off by understanding more math.